Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug, president of the Franklin News Foundation and publisher of the Center Square. We built the Center Square Newswire service to address the shortcomings of legacy media and state and federal reporting. Center Square Newswire delivers more than 75 original straight news stories each day from across the country, each story helping Americans understand what elected officials and bureaucrats in state and federal government are doing on behalf of the taxpaying public in their home state and across the nation. On this week's Center Square Radio Hour, we'll explore the top stories with the reporters who broke them, from those originating in Washington, D.C., to the oftentimes underreported state stories that hold national relevance. We round out our coverage with economic insights from Dr. Orfe Divangi, Ph.D. economist, and also bring you the latest in K-12 public education from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News Team. The Center Square is a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization to ensure that the Center Square continues to deliver the news like no other media outlet in America today. We ask that you go to franklinnews.org and make a tax-deductible charitable contribution to support the Center Square and the Center Square Radio Hour. Over the next hour, we're going to check in with our reporting team on a number of stories that made headlines this past week. This week in Washington, D.C., search for a new Speaker of the House plotted along with Ohio's Jim Jordan emerging as the forerunner but falling short of approval. In California, the Center Square has reported on new data that shows violent crime has risen while arrests have declined. And across the nation, we will look at the wide-ranging changes that have occurred within police funding and policing policies since the death of George Floyd in 2020. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Breaking news, that's what the Center Square does best. The stories other media outlets refuse to report, the Center Square's breaking them all the time. Stories about government waste and political spending. Stories about partisan agendas that hijack your tax dollars. The Center Square has it all covered and delivers the biggest news to your inbox as it happens. Sign up now for your state Center Square newsletters at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Under the Capitol Dome in Washington, D.C., Republicans in control of the House of Representatives continued the grinding process of selecting a new speaker amidst concerns of another potential upcoming government shutdown and the war in Israel and ongoing war in Ukraine. Dan McCaleb, executive editor for the Center Square, is here to tell us more. Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. But another long week, both in Washington and abroad, of course. Casey, we're recording this on Friday, October 20th. It's now been more than two weeks since U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted by fellow Republicans from his leadership position, and that we still do not seem any closer to having his replacement in place. U.S. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio has not secured the necessary support to rise to the speakership in two separate votes this week. As I said, we're recording this on the morning of October 20th, and there could be a third vote later today. But what's your analysis of what's going on in the House, Casey, and what could happen next? Mm, yes, the, the analysis is that all of the chaos, um, all of the hurt feelings, the partisanship, years of frustration and division and um, backing Trump, resenting those who didn't back Trump and vice versa, the comments around January 6th and which side you took in the Republican Party, all, all of this, the talks about the swamp, it's all coming to a head in one big, ugly speakership battle and this thing has become like when you have a bitter fight over a will 
or a bad divorce or something, Dan, where, you know, it may just seem like, why can't these guys get this speakership thing together? But I think there's a lot under the surface and a lot of frustration with the way the party has been headed on both sides within the Republican Party on this. There is a more populist wing that that feels like there is this Trump inspired wave of populism, but it's really bigger than him now. And the American people, you know, it's Tucker Carlson, it's Vivek. Ramaswamy's foreign policy takes. It's like all these things pushing the Republican Party um, in a younger, new direction. And then there is kind of the traditional establishment Republicans who have been in Congress for a long time, and they really resent some of the nonsense that they see from this populist wing. And they're like, we cannot let this party be taken down by this, because as soon as we hand the reins over to the more populist Republicans, we're going to turn around in this next election and only have, you know, 100 seats in Congress, right? So I think that's their strategy. And on top of that, they're just really frustrated for personal reasons. I know that, you know, if we step back and look at what happened, Dan, you know, you remember that uh, Matt Gates filed the motion to vacate and got McCarthy, um, who was the speaker, out. And then um, Scalise, who was, who's the House Majority Leader, Republican from Louisiana, he was seen as the next in line, right? But I know from talking to people that, a lot of people feel that Scalise was done wrong in how his chance to be speaker was handled. He never even went to the floor. A lot of people uh, who were Jordan supporters ultimately just were not willing to even give Scalise a chance to be voted on. And I think that caused some bad blood in the speakership battle. And so when it was Jordan's time to get a vote, some of the Scalise allies said, no, we're not we're not doing this. And by the way, we don't like how much you're pressuring us, Jordan, and, and your allies and some conservative media people have been pressuring really hard. So all of to say, I don't. I think we are stuck. Um, Going to be talking through lawyers pretty soon here, Dan. In this in this battle, and it's not it's not getting better anytime soon. There was another wrinkle Thursday, October nineteenth. Casey, very brief moment when it looked like Jordan might be backing out and putting his support by uh, elevating the powers of the current Speaker Pro Temp, Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. But that didn't last too long because there were other Republicans with backlash over it. Just briefly describe what happened there. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Jordan, I think Jordan was saying, and I believe the reports I'm seeing is that McCarthy was, you know, interested in this as well. They're saying, well, fine, if, if we can't elect a Speaker, let's put McHenry in charge just long enough to get some things done. And then in January, we'll let Jordan run again. Now, I don't think that plan was ever going to be popular. And there was a chance that they would maybe have to ask Democrats to help him with that. And I don't think Democrats would have been very willing to do so. So it was a a proposal that was thrown out there. And immediately a lot of Republicans were like, no, we cannot do this. Who's, you know, we don't want to empower McHenry. A lot were saying it's kind of unconstitutional. It's it just was not a, not a popular plan. And so George said, okay, okay, we won't, we won't do this. Um, I'm going to tr- keep trying to get these votes. Uh, he had a press conference this morning. You know, it was kind of a little bit odd, but I think he's just trying to rally, rally the support. But right now he's still falling short and I'm not, I'm not seeing a great path forward for Jordan right now. But man, this speakership thing has been so dysfunctional, so crazy that who knows, there really is no way of predicting, you know, We've talked to you and I, Dan, have talked and someone will tell us on the phone, oh, this is definitely going to happen today, this guy. And then like five minutes later, we get off the phone and some new person is getting voted on and they were totally wrong. And so nobody really knows what's going to happen. I don't think even Jordan, McHenry, um, McCarthy, Scalise, I don't think they really know what's going to happen either. They're just trying to ride this this wave of and get something done in time. And I'll just point out, Dan, you may have mentioned it, but 
mid-November, the government shuts down. And it's not like we can say, oh, as long as we get a speaker by mid-November, we'll be fine. It's like, no, we have to get a speaker who had, then has enough time to pass government funding, which is, we know, extremely difficult. Um, not to mention funding the you know wars in Israel and Ukraine. President obviously. Biden called for more than $100 billion in funding for both Ukraine and now Israel. And there were some, some, some other items thrown in his message. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's regularly pledged support for Israel and warned other foreign powers not to get involved. He visited Israel that trip. You know, he was planning to visit like Jordan and, and others, and some of that really fell through. But I think he's wanted to make a strong statement behind Israel and get that funding. You know, he took some criticism for that speech already. And I think part of that was people, Republicans felt that he was trying to use the Israel conflict um, to get more Ukraine money. And by wrapping these together, people can't say no. You know, Republicans aren't going to say no to Israel and Democrats aren't going to say no to Ukraine. So if you put them together, it's the bill that no one can vote against and you can just have this endless check. So that's going to be something we're monitoring um, at thecentersquare.com, as always, as we're focused on taxpayer spending. Casey, just to wrap up, I know you said not even Republicans and leadership knows what's going to happen next. But just I'm going to put you on the spot to close. You expect a resolution in the next several days? No. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first. No. Your one word response. Mm. Well, I appreciate your in insight into this complicated but very important story, uh, Casey, but we are now out of time. As I mentioned, listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to our team in D.C. for that update. Beyond the dysfunction within the capital, the dysfunction of large American cities continues to manifest itself in ways that are now detectable by data. The Federal Bureau of Investigations recently released crime statistics for the year 2022. It shows a sharp increase in violent crime in the state of California, along with a decrease in the number of arrests. Nationally, violent crime across the country has decreased. Let's go to Center Square Regional Editor David Mastio to learn more about this story. As always, I'm joined by Kenneth Schrupp, a California reporter for the Center Square. Today, we're talking about rising crime rates in California. Kenneth, before you go into the news, begin by explaining why these numbers can be confusing and what you did to sort that out. If you look year over year between 2022 and 2021 for the number of total crimes reported, you will see a dramatic increase that goes far beyond the increases in the rate of crime. That's because many police departments simply decided not to approve and implement the new FBI crime reporting system that had been announced in 2014 or 2015. So they had six years, really, to adopt this new system, and they just decided not to do it, and they were supposed to, which means that there's a lot of data missing for 2021. So we're comfortable that with this year's numbers, we're able to talk about real trends in crime with a sufficient number of police departments reporting. Yes, we're back to more or less normal reporting figures. That gives us an accurate idea of what things look like in California. So this year, what did the FBI report nationally, and what did they say in California? The violent crime rate across the U.S. as a whole decreased from 387 to 380.7 crimes per 100,000 people nationwide. In California, it went up from 481.2 to 499.5 violent crimes per 100,000 people. Not only do we have a much higher rate than the national average, we also have an increase that was double the, de the national decrease. This suggests things are not going in a good direction for California. 
How do California Republicans and Democrats differ over what's causing this? A lot of California Democrats will point to organized crime as driving much of the increase. Meanwhile, Republicans will say that, A, this reporting is incomplete because so many people just don't report crimes because they don't think the police are going to show up. And if they do show up, they don't think people are going to be prosecuted. And you have a lot of district attorneys who will refuse to prosecute anything that isn't a serious violent felony. So officers, of course, won't often bother arresting people for crimes that are deemed less serious and probably won't get attention from a prosecutor. So that's the reason that crime is up and arrests are down. Yes, we do have a dual phenomenon here where crime and crimes committed are increasing significantly and arrests are decreasing significantly over 2019. In, let's say, California overall, we had a million or so arrests in 2019, down to just 750,000, 775,000 in 2022. So that's about a 27% decline in arrests. Where is this phenomenon of rising violent crime happening? Is it just big cities or is it all over California? Well, if we're going to be looking at arrest rates and crime rates, you'd think that it would just be the big cities, but it really is a statewide issue. So this decline in arrests, you can look at LAPD and San Francisco PD, the two sort of headline agencies in the state. LAPD made 54,000 arrests in 2019, but just 39,000 in 2022. That's a 28% decline. So just a little bit more than the overall state decline. SFPD made 14,337 arrests in 2019 and 10,249 in 2022. That's a 29% decline. Not that much more than the state average, which really just shows you that the decline in arrests and the increase in crime is is not just localized to the big cities. It's a real statewide issue. These numbers aren't a surprise to Governor Gavin Newsom. Earlier this year, he called out the National Guard in San Francisco to address organized fentanyl gangs. And he announced an increase in the number of National Guard some weeks after he, he first called out the National Guard. What's Gavin Newsom's position in he has a very strong interest in appearing tough on crime, and to a huge extent, he has followed through and acted upon that. San Francisco is really a stain upon his image, should he ever wish to run for president. In San Francisco, he deployed the National Guard to shut down these open-air drug markets. It really was quite a scene that existed in San Francisco before this. You could go out into the middle of the street and people are just hawking drugs. You can buy your fentanyl, you can buy your heroin, whatever you need. It was easily available and, of course, entirely unregulated. Speaking of San Francisco, the mayor there has some proposals ready for the ballot. Yes. Mayor London Breed, who has been in office since 2018, she's put out three proposals that people largely support, even her former and current opponents. First of those measures is one that would decrease bureaucracy and ideological control by activists of the police department and allow the police to chase people who are committing felonies, including committing retail theft, and also allow for the use of cameras and drones and finding criminals, tracking them down and arresting them. Second thing she's proposing is getting rid of a lot of the taxes for turning offices into apartment buildings. Third is also very interesting. She would require that 
if you are receiving county cash welfare, you would have to be screened for substance abuse disorders. And if you have a substance abuse disorder, you would have to participate in a treatment program and actually be actively doing well in that program and demonstrating some kind of progress and engaging with the program to receive your welfare cash payments. This is something that I've heard Republicans talk about for years, and seeing it happen in San Francisco would be a really huge win for London Breed. Is this the beginning of a get-tough approach from Democrats statewide? I wouldn't count on it being a statewide thing. I think that Newsom has a lot of strength in San Francisco. That's where he was mayor of. That's where really he got his political career. His main backers are all from the SF area. If you look back more at the rest of the California Democratic Caucus, it's things don't look so promising. California Assembly Majority Leader Brian has refused to vote against anything that would increase incarceration rates. I'm David Mastio with The Center Square, and we've been talking with Kenneth Schrutt, California reporter for The Center Square. Thank you, David and Kenneth, for that update. Evolving policing policy and practices could be a factor in California's rising crime rates, but California is not the only place in the United States where policing is changing. Since the death of George Floyd in 2020 in Minneapolis, public safety and policing policies and practices have been under a fair amount of scrutiny. Several cities have responded by making changes. Some cities have made changes to their changes. Joining me to tell us more is Tom Gannert, managing editor for the Center Square. Tom, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. The Center Square has published a, a number of stories uh, on this matter recently, and I know that there are more coming uh, in, in the pipeline that the team is working on. There are a number of cities where policing changes and policies have, have been happening and funding policies have been changing at the, at the same time. Where are you looking right now? Where are the cities where you're spending the vast majority of your work and focus? Uh, we're, we're trying to look at as many major cities as where this was an issue. So we're starting with, we, we already did a story on Chicago. We're looking at Minneapolis, which was ground zero of the uh, kind of defund the police movement. Uh, and then we're also looking, uh, coming up on Milwaukee. And then we'll be looking at uh, some West Coast cities like Seattle and Los Angeles, too. So what, you know, what changes uh, have been made since 2020? And what of the changes that were made, and a lot of them were made, you know, in a to be objective, I mean, under a tremendous amount of emotion, you know, I mean, not only were we under the cloud of COVID-19, but there were riots in the streets and, and, you know, I mean, certainly high profile deaths, including George Floyd's. What are the changes that have been made? What have, what's stuck and what hasn't? What we're finding and in, in what we're reporting is that there was a quick reaction to reduce policing at the start in 2020. And what we're seeing right now is that there is a return to uh, staffing policing. Okay, so in Chicago, where we looked at, we saw uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson, who was, he mentioned at one point that defunding the police was more than just a slogan. It was an actual political goal. And then what we found is that in, in 2024, he actually talked about increasing the staffing of police. And the spending on Chicago police is $2 billion, which is which is going to be a record. And that's what we saw. Now, in, in Minneapolis, it's kind of an interesting situation because they had a put a ballot between the voters to dissolve the police department and replace it with a, a Department of Public Safety, uh, which was not really clear on what that would mean. And there was some talk about whether it even involved 
you know, sworn police officers. So what's happened in Minneapolis is that, you know, this justice report came out in June from the Department of Justice. And, uh, you know, when George Floyd died in 2020, uh, Minneapolis had 888 sworn police officers. Currently, they have 571 as of September 11th. That's the city report. Now, here's the interesting thing. They have 571. They're budgeted. They put money aside for 731. The problem is the city can't find enough officers to hire. And that is that is the same issue that exists in Chicago, which you just referenced. I mean, there was a, a report in local news here, 1,200 detectives short of what is budgeted for this year and thousands more patrol officers. And what they're seeing here in Chicago, and let's talk about whether this is something that you're seeing elsewhere, is that formerly that, you know, when the police would have a recruiting event and they would have the testing, first of all, it was very difficult to be able to qualify to take the test. And that applicants often would be pushed months down the line to the next test. Now you have same day applicants that are able to go into the test. People are taking the test, passing the test, and then opting not to take the position. Is, is Are things like that occurring in other cities outside of Chicago? There is a problem trying to find enough police officers all across the country, a shortage of police officers. And we see this in Texas where they had a law that was passed after the shooting, the school shooting, that every public school had to have an armed security guard on campus. And we did a story about all the school districts that were allowed to opt out of that because they simply could not find enough officers to hire to meet the requirements of the law because they couldn't get a police officer or an armed officer for each campus building. But what we're seeing is a shift in, you know, George Floyd was three years ago, three plus years ago. And one of the things that, you know, so let's, you know, a story we have coming up on Milwaukee, you know, then Mayor Tom Barrett proposed cutting 120 police officers from the 1800 they had budgeted in 2021. And that is, you know, right months, just four months after George Floyd was murdered. Well, let's hop forward three years now. So the new mayor, Cavalier Johnson, he gave a speech where he said, I'm not cutting police sworn officers. And then he said that uh, they're going to take revenues from an upcoming new sales tax. And that's going to be dedicated in part to paying for new police officers. So, you know, in Milwaukee, they're finding uh, revenue streams to add police, which is completely different than the mentality right after the George Floyd murder. There's another piece to this that that's kind of tied to it. That's a trend that we see that's that continues to get worse and worse or better and better, depending on your point of view. And that is, what are the police doing that are hired? So if you look at Minneapolis in 2012, police arrested 34,146 people in 2012 in Minneapolis. In 2022, according to the FBI, that went down to 6,200. So they went from 34,000 arrests 10 years ago to 6,000 arrests in 2022. And that's not just Minneapolis. Los Angeles, 2012, 101,000 arrests. And in 2022, 38,000. And you talked about Chicago, uh, 2012, 81,700 arrests. 2022, 14,600. So there's a lot of issues going on with policing, not just do we uh, have enough to protect our, our citizens, but what are they doing once they're on the job? Tom Gannert, Managing Editor at the Center Square. Thank you for your insights. Thank you. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we'll look at more top stories from across the nation. What does the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security's latest report say about 
Secretary Mayorkas's handling of the border? What did the latest ACT scores show about college readiness among students? What are the economic implications of a dysfunctional Congress? All that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are some of the stories you may have missed this week at thecentersquare.com. Some higher education institutions in Arkansas have maintained demographic targets after the U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year rolled back affirmative action, but say that no group is receiving an unfair advantage. On Monday, lawmakers of the Higher Education Subcommittee of the Arkansas Legislative Council Joint Performance Review Committee heard how universities in the state are implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion, also known as DEI initiatives. Representatives from the University of Arkansas for Medical Science told committee members their target is for the population of the institution's students, faculty, and staff to mirror the demographics of the state of Arkansas. Emergency rules from Illinois State Police about the state's gun ban registry continue to be in place, but a bipartisan committee of legislators say more needs to be done to address the public concern and provide clarity on the law. The rules as part of the state's gun ban named the Protect Illinois Communities Act were filed by Illinois State Police in September for the registry window to open October 1st. Those with certain pre-owned firearms, attachments, and 50 caliber ammunition that the act now bans are required to register them with the state before January 1st, 2024, or face potential criminal penalties. With additional COVID-19 federal K-12 school funding winding down, Tennessee continues its look at what school funding could be without federal dollars, which amounted to $10.4 billion coming into the state between 2019 and 2023. Between November 6th and 15th, a new federal education funding working group will look at what it would take for Tennessee to fund schools outside of federal requirements and outside of federal funds. That includes $5.8 billion in federal entitlement grants over that time frame, along with $4.6 billion in one-time federal grants to Tennessee schools, according to a Tennessee Department of Education report filed at the request of Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton. We'll be right back with more in-depth stories on the Center Square Radio Hour. Between the Consumer Price Index, inflation, and job reports, it feels like you need a PhD in economics to fully understand the economic news happening around us every day. That's why you need the Everyday Economics Podcast. Join host Chris Crude and economist Dr. Orfe Devungi as they help you understand the economic world happening around you every day. Listen to the Everyday Economics Podcast at americastalking.com or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. The House Committee on Homeland Security released its third report in its ongoing oversight investigation into the border policies of the Biden administration. Dan McCaleb is here to tell us more. Joining me again today is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. As war rages in the Middle East uh, and the conflict between 
Israel and uh, Hamas. And of course, you've got the ongoing now nearly two-year war between Russia and Ukraine. There are heightened concerns of the potential for domestic terrorism here in the United States. Since President Joe Biden took office and changed drastically changed uh, immigration policy in the United States, um, there are concerns that individuals from these from some of these uh, countries abroad, including Iran, China, etc., uh, have made their way across the U.S. border into the U.S. The State Department issued an alert for Americans traveling overseas of, uh, because of what's going on over there. But increasingly, we're hearing more concerns about what could happen domestically. You know, more than eight million uh, people have been encountered trying to enter the United States both at the northern and the southern borders from more than 160 countries across the world. Uh, there's been more than 2 million gotaways, the, uh, the phrase that Border Patrol uses for those people who successfully get into the U.S. and are not apprehended, don't know who they are, where they're from, etc. Both President Biden and the FBI director, Christopher Wray, have said in the past week that the U.S. is on heightened terrorist alert. What do we make of all this? Yeah, I mean, we make that it's a real a real issue and a real concern and, and something that a lot of people have been talking about for a long time, but it's been totally ignored. Um, but now, as you said, this Israel-Hamas conflict has put a new spotlight on terrorism. We've seen that even in a highly fortified nation like Israel, they have a giant fence. They have, you know, they have a very kind of vigilant military structure and they're always looking. They are expecting attacks, right, especially from that region that they received them from. And yet they still weren't able to stop basically, you know, over well over that a thousand people um, from being kidnapped, killed, attacked um, by these, these militants who kind of just <laughs> came in. And so it's like, wait, wait a minute, could this happen in the U S and that's kind of the question in the American mind right now. And uh, the answer is like, well, maybe. <laughs> and so some of our officials have said some pretty uh, unsettling things. Uh, you referenced uh, president Joe Biden. He said in a 60 minutes interview flat out that this, uh, that the conflict in the middle East has increased the risk of terror in the United States. So he just said yes to that. And then you mentioned um, you mentioned Ray Christopher Ray, FBI director. Uh, he also has said that terrorist threat is more likely to occur right now. And you know we've written a lot about the border um, and and what's going on there. You've mentioned the millions of people and there might be terrorists coming in. I would just say there definitely are terrorists who have come into the country. People with links to terrorism. It is, it's just a really undisputed fact at this point. The only question is how many, how many are there? Um, because we know that there's been hundreds of people on the terror watch list who have been caught. More um, than 600 in the, in the last fiscal year mm -hmm. alone were apprehended trying to enter the U.S. Um, through either the northern or southern borders. And what's not known is how many gotaways, how many of those people who successfully evaded capture got into the country without being apprehended, um, how many of them are on the terror watch list? Right. And that assumes, you know, really wrongly that we know who terrorists are always. It's just as possible that some of the people coming over who, who are not raising any red flags um, have actually been radicalized. They've coming from over 160 nations. Right. So I think it's still in the American mind that people coming across the southern border are from like, you know, Mexico and, and Ecuador or something. But that's just not not the case. And they also come across the northern border on um, very high rates as well. The number of terrorists caught at the northern border um, and the Trump administration was even higher, I believe, than the southern border. Right. And so you've made this point before, too, Dan. That, so this um, just shows you, I mean, 
for everyone that's caught, there's got to be a certain percentage that's not caught. So it might be that for everyone that's caught, there's one that's not caught. Or for every two that's caught, there's one that's not caught. But regardless, they're getting in. And the FBI director, the president is saying, yeah, terror, terrorism is a bigger threat. There's no real plans to close the border right now. No big plans to drastically increase some kind of enforcement or security at the southern border in a in a way that's probably really going to address this problem. We know, you know, you talked about Iran, but, you know, Iran's leaders, um, the same ones who are gleefully funding Hamas, they chant death to America, right? I mean, they're, they see um, destroying America as not as important as destroying Israel, but it, it's definitely on the top five bucket list, Dan. And, of course, you've seen uh, protests significant protests across the U.S., uh, many of them pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, a pro-Palestinian group essentially swarmed a congressional building in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill earlier this week. They were all arrested. So who knows what's going to happen next? I do think Americans need to be on heightened alert. The U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security has been investigating the border crisis for a couple of years now. In three recent reports, the committee uh, citing the Center Square's border reporting puts the blame squarely on the Biden administration's, more specifically Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. So they continue to investigate going, what's going on with the border and the need for better border security. And just the heightened tensions in the Middle East um, exacerbate the problem. Closing comments, Casey. Um, I would just say, you know, I keep wanting to talk to an expert or find someone who says, oh, you're overblowing it. You're being a little bit dramatic. Casey, don't, don't worry too much about this. But I'm finding the opposite, which is the more you look into it, the worse it gets. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I talked to Laura Rees, former acting head of the Department of Homeland Security, for a story on this same topic. And she basically backed up much of what we're saying and said, you know, that this is very serious and seemingly kind of scary. Well, I appreciate your insights into this uh, into this important story. Uh, Casey, Americans should be on the alert, particularly those who are traveling abroad, but certainly here domestically as well. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to Dan and Casey for that update. While public safety and national security are important concerns for the future of our country, the success of our children and their education is as well. The latest ACT scores fell again this year after a six-year trend of declining academic readiness among high schoolers. Let's go back to Dan McCaleb to hear more on this story. Joining me again today is Chalkboard's K-12 editor, Brendan Clary. How are you, Brendan? I'm doing well, Dan. How about yourself? Doing well, thank you. We are recording this on Monday, October 16th. Brendan, quoting directly from your reporting from late last week, the latest standardized test scores results show academic achievement declines for now the sixth year in a row, with over 40% of students failing to reach college readiness goals. And scores fell again in all testing subjects in the 2022-2023 school year. What's going on here, Brendan? Yeah, Dan, I think, you know, what what I've reported before about some of these standardized testing is is basically it's still all bad news, right, from the school closures that we saw in COVID-19. And and as you said, you know, this is going sort of beyond that, like this has shown a decline that has persisted since then. But I, I think that this sort of reiterates, you know, the 
academic achievement uh, losses uh, that that students have demonstrated on these on these standardized test scores. And I think you can argue, you know, back and forth about, you know, are these the best metric to determine student success? But this is the one that we have, right, of these sort of standardized SAT, ACT. There's some other ones, some private assessments called the NWEA. And, you know, a statewide assessments, that sort of thing. But, you know, there there are these assessments used to try to determine how much do students know? Are they ready for college? And, and that's what the ACT tries to do is they try to have benchmarks that sort of indicate whether a student is going to be ready for college. And colleges and universities across the country use the ACT and or separately the SAT for admission guidelines. Right. To see, you know, are students going to be successful here? Um, you know, and if they have to say to some students, you're not going to be able to come here, then that can become a factor, right, of, of what was their ACT score. You know, and just personally, ACT is what my high school made everybody take. And so that that is, you know, it's usually the ACT or the SAT and sometimes, you know, both. But but that was the one that that I had to take and, and that kind of determined here's what colleges are looking for. And this is, you know, sort of the average. Uh, so that, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a big metric. But as I was saying, like, you know, you have these college readiness benchmarks, right? They sort of indicate how successful will students likely be. And, and you know, can't determine everything, but how successful will they be on, you know, math class in, in freshman year of college? And it's, it's low. Like, that's what, that's what we found uh, from the testing last year is that only 21% of students nationally met the readiness benchmarks, according to the ACT's report. So the ACT is both the test and also the nonprofit there. It also found that 57% of students who took the test nationwide were below proficiency in understanding what it calls complex texts, which is, you know, the written material, you know, that you find either in college or maybe in the workplace. So like a manual or like college level reading. And so that tracks with some of the other assessment data that I've seen come in with the nation's report card. Um, they had like a long-term trend assessment. Uh, I believe that's what it was called that I covered that you know, basically found that there had not been any post-pandemic academic recovery and that the news was basically all bad. And, and again, you know, the Northwest Evaluation Association reported this summer that some students would need an entire school year you know, to achieve the academic performance that they had similar to the pandemic. And that, and so for them, that was just like a way that they could highlight the gap that students, how far students are behind now compared to where they were before uh, school closures related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So you simultaneously reported that um, the graduation rates in many districts are soaring. And you talked to so- someone for this story that said that uh, maybe they've lower schools have lowered their standards or their benchmarks. Yeah, so that was reporting that I, I did previously, where I talked to uh, I believe his name is Douglas Harris at Tulane University, and he he that's his whole focus, right? His research focus is to try to figure out you know what uh, students are learning and what the graduation criteria are, and you know what do students know and how do we figure that out? And essentially, he said that the graduation rates during COVID were unchanged. And, you know, you see all this academic uh, achievement loss in these different assessments, but what you don't see is is a lower graduation rate on, on the whole, right? So he said basically something had to give, and these school districts were really uncomfortable saying, uh, we're going to punish students for, you know, the, a global pandemic, so we're going to let them graduate. And he uh, recommended using the term COVID credentials to de- try to describe, you know, diplomas essentially handed out to high school students who don't know the same amount as students uh, before the pandemic, you know, so he he basically said we have to call that a different 
sort of thing. And you, I saw the same sort of thing here uh, with the ACT report. They they call it a COVID cohort. Uh, and so that that's like another way to kind of describe these students who graduated after learning during the pandemic and whose who's experience in school, in high school, was, you know, marked by uh, school closures related to COVID-19. When, you know, a lot of officials said uh, students have to work from home and we're going to, you know, kind of shut everything down. So that's yeah that that that's you know what we've we've seen in districts like Chicago and Detroit where they actually said hey our our graduation rate has increased but what you don't see is you know students meeting those college readiness benchmarks in, in uh, you know SAT scores um, which is you know another standardized test and so that that's something that I looked at last time when I when I wrote about this is are students really ready for college or are they graduating and what I heard from the professor uh, the researcher that the the criteria to graduate are very fungible like you can you can move that around and it's sort of a local local angle and you know there was some statewide uh sometimes state or local leniency on like let's help these students graduate certainly concerning information there brendan and thank you for your insight but we are out of time listeners can keep up with this story and all stories related to k-12 education at chalkboardnews.com thank you dan and brendan for that update The influence of education trends goes well beyond the schoolroom, and similarly, the events in Congress have impacts that go well beyond Washington, D.C. The House of Representatives struggle to decide on the next speaker might be primarily a political and procedural problem, but dysfunction in Congress has economic impacts. Joining me to help us understand more is Ph.D. economist Dr. Orfe Devangi. Talk about dysfunction. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the representative from California, Republican, ousted largely through a non-confidence vote. In the now three weeks that have passed, the Republicans have, have tried to, to put in a new speaker. By the time you hear this, we may or may not have one. When you have this kind of a scenario, what is the economic impact specifically, uh, domestically? And, and of course, you know, uh, we're the world's ATM, apparently. Look, it's a lot of political uncertainty, right? And the uncertainty is going to cause people to sit on their wallets, which is why I think uh, you're going to continue to see the economic growth slow. You have a ton of stuff that needs to be resolved in this country. And lawmakers are the, the conduit, right? The only, the, the, they're the way you get these things done. And if they're not working, well, nothing gets done. So, you know, you have a housing crisis in this country. You know, affordability is at an all-time low. We need uh, federal, state, and local governments to act so that builders can go ahead and build housing where housing is needed. That ain't getting done, right? You have these wars that are popping up everywhere. And guess what? Nothing's getting done. And so domestically, internationally, and uh, all of that is going to, uh, to, to you know, and, and people are turning to the Fed, right? So I saw recently the Mortgage Bankers Association, uh, the National Association of Realtors, they're writing letters to the Fed saying, hey, the Fed has to say, hey, we are stopping the rate hikes. And okay, well, I think most of the action that we're seeing in the in yields is really not due to the Fed. It's mostly due to the fact that there's a ton of uncertainty, political uncertainty. Yes, of course, the US economy has been somewhat resilient, but there's a ton of uncertainty there's large debt issuance by the federal government and government borrowing, massive fiscal deficits still increasing. All of these things, 
need to be addressed. And the only way they get addressed is in Congress. You know, we have uh, we've run into issues where we basically can't pay our debts because of uh, debt limits. We run into government potential government shutdowns. This has become more and more common. And, and now we can't even elect a speaker. So, I mean, look, ultimately, this is having a huge negative impact. And it's showing up in yields already. Mortgage rates are at 8% now. The 10-year treasury yield is approaching 5%, the highest in 16, in 16 years. Mortgage rates are at the highest level in 23 years. So, yeah, I mean, before blaming the Fed, I would probably look at the federal government and Congress in particular and say, hey, it's time to step up and, uh, and get the job done, right? Uh, look, when this whole thing started, when inflation soared past 9% back in June of 2022, I was first to say the Fed is going to need help from the federal government. The Fed can't do it alone. It can't tame this inflation beast without basically pushing us into a recession. The Fed could continue to raise interest rates, but if it does, it will push us into a recession. And if we want that soft lending, and by the way, it's done a tremendous job in my opinion. The Fed has done a tremendous job in my opinion. We got CPI back in the three uh, to a three handle, and it's you know it's ticking lower. We got the labor market to cool down substantially, and wage growth is cooling. Uh, so I think that I think the Fed has done a tremendous job in the last year or so to get inflation to come down from nine percent to three point five percent, three point six seven percent. I think that's amazing. It's an amazing accomplishment, especially given the fact that we've avoided a recession so far. I was watching uh, CNBC uh, yesterday on my flight from Denver back to Chicago. And they had this gentleman on uh, who was with a bank. And forgive me, I don't remember the name of the bank and I don't remember the name of the gentleman, but he was from Mississippi. And, you know, they're talking about soft landing, hard landing. And and he, he kind of threw a like a sort of a little bit of a knuckleball in there. But I really liked it. Talked about a safe landing. And I think that that kind of like that jives with what you've been talking about. You know, that there's some expectation, I think, among Americans or maybe it's a hope that one way or another that there's some there's some finality that like if it crashes, it crashes. If it lands, it lands. And this, this is frankly, this is more like a longer glide path forward that ultimately, per what you said and, and, and what this gentleman uh, was the, the guest on CNBC said, you know, it just you know, there will be a like a safe landing, not necessarily a soft landing, not a crash, but a, a safe landing. And it's just going to take a while. It is. But we need help, man. We can't we can't have a safe landing if we're still talking about things like the Basel three endgame, where basically uh, you have these new banking regulation, banking sector regulations. We can't be talking about red tape, more red tape. We should be talking about, right? We should be talking about deregulation. We should be talking about allowing banks to function well, especially given their their uh, paper losses, given the increase in yields. We should be talking about allowing builders to build, upzoning, uh, you know, uh, land use reforms. We should be talking about that stuff. We should be looking at federal, state, and local governments, right? And uh, so those are the things that I think we need to address. And many more, by the way. I'm only uh, talking about a couple of things in housing, but so many issues with this country right now. 
right? Let alone, like, right? And then, and then you got the problems abroad. And of course, for that reason, we should at least make sure that we get our house in order and that Congress gets back to work. Well, I appreciate you bringing that back around. That's where we started and that's where we'll end. Well, that will do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network. Center Square Radio Hour is produced by Eliana Kernodal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. To add the Center Square Radio Hour to your station, contact us at syndicate at franklinnews.org. I'm Chris Krug, and on behalf of everyone at Franklin News Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.